Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. Have we got a show for you today. I'm so excited to present our guest for today. She is an author. She is a NDE, which is near-death um, survivor and uh, she is it's changed her entire life and it can change all of us if we understand what's really going on and she is going to enlighten us a little bit about that and we're going to have a great discussion about life after death and uh, what we can do here to make every day count for its absolute best and understand that uh, we're capable of doing all of that. Uh, Nicole Angelique Kerr is with us. Is that right? That's exactly right. Ooh, look at Woo-hoo! me. <laughs> and and she is a near, like we said, a near-death survivor. And uh, um, But it took a while, didn't it? Yeah. So, so first of all, tell us your story. Where are you from and what do you do and what did you do and how did you, how did you figure out that you were had a near-death experience. Okay. Well, if you go back to the very beginning, I, I was born at Camp Lejeune, which I now live 33 miles from. I moved two years ago to New Bern, North Carolina. So, um, By the way, I want to thank you for your service. You're welcome. I'm a 100% disabled veteran as a result of the crash that I was in. So I there's not many of us out there. I think it's like 0.3% of all veterans have the permanent 100% disability status. So um, people that did took some heavy hits to get that, but I appreciate that. And um, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. Do you know where that is? As, yeah, I've, I haven't been to Jackson, Mississippi. I've heard it's, it's hot. It's hot, hot, hot and humid. It's crossroads of the South. You drive through it to get to uh, Georgia or uh, Texas, or you're going the other way, you know, down to New Orleans or up to Memphis. But But, you made uh, made the key. You're driving through it. You don't stop there. You keep going. (laughs) No, in poor Mississippi, they can't seem to get out of the 50th state of stuff, you know, Um, very, very poverty, low income. It's it's sad. It really is sad. Um, But that's where I grew up. And of course, that is the Bible Belt, along with the sweet tea belt and fried food belt. But the Bible Belt, um, you and I were talking before the show about religion and how much that influences uh, you in uh, in terms of your relationship to death. Actually, it's your relationship with God that influences your relationship with death. But religion will influence a whole lot of other things as well. And I grew up Missouri Synod Lutheran, just like you did, and also Southern Baptist, because my dad was Baptist, my mom was Lutheran. So we, somebody asked me once, well, what what do you say about religion? I said, I just had too much of it. I said, and they were contradictory. And I said, if they can't get it right, then God must even be confused, because one's telling me this set of rules, and the other one's telling me this set of rules. In order to get to him, I've got to you know, do this, that, and the other, but what they both have in common and most of the denominations is an element of creating a God, a concept of God that is duality and God is loving and he's protecting and he's um, always there for you and will, you know, will be there. And then on the other hand, 
if you cross him or if you don't obey any of the commandments and the other rules that the church has come up with, then you're deemed a sinner. You're deemed bad. You're going to a place called hell, H-E-double hockey sticks is how we had to say it. And, uh, you know, that that's where you just burn in eternity. And as a six-year-old kid growing up, that terrorizes you to think that there's this place down in the core of the earth that just burns in inferno. And that if you're bad, you're going to go down there and you're going to be separated from your family. And I could never get this in my head. Like, well, what do you do? Eat barbecue down there all the time? And how do you, how do you take a, a shower? You know, I was trying to, we take things literally when we we're children. And I just thought, how does that even happen? You know, so uh, we really did have fear installed in us at a very, very young age. And so that fear is going to run the back of your brain. It's going to be in the unconscious part, but it's going to be in almost every decision you make. You're going to go back to it. And if you haven't changed your belief systems, then you're still operating out of that concept of God. I call it a vending machine concept where you punch, you put in the right behavior, you put in the right change and you punch the Coca-Cola button. But what happens, Kevin, when Mountain Dew comes out or nothing comes out of the vending machine? Whose fault is it? I, I know. Well, it, it can't be God's. It's got to be the devil. It's you. Yeah, you screwed up. You did something wrong. And it's always your fault. It's never God's fault. So um, it was a lot of church. And the South is also very, as most places are, very family focused, you know, and and it was being raised in a state that had a lot of racism. And that was something I went to private school for up till seventh grade. And then I went into the public school system. And of course, I was bused. I was in, in an all white bus that was bused into a, a all black school. So I had that experience as well. And it was really, really eye opening to me to see uh, the difference in the public and private schools and what resources were allocated and and just what you learn. So that was a, a lesson that really stayed with me as well. But when I was 18 years old, uh, I had modeled, I had done all these things that had nothing to do with the military. But the fact that my father was a graduate of the Air Force Academy and he went cross commissioned into the Marine Corps because it wasn't tough enough. Um, the Air Force wasn't. Uh, I wanted to please my father so bad. I have three siblings, but I'm the number two. And I wanted his love, his approval, his appreciation, all of that, that we all want from our parents. Sure. Um, so in 1976, if you remember, Congress authorized women to enter the military academies. And so the first class graduated 80. My dad was so excited because now his girl could go to the academy. So I had I was so insecure at that point because I had done everything my dad told me to do. I lived in fear of him. So I didn't individuate at age six and become my own person. You did not talk back to my dad. You did not disobey my dad. My dad had his own Ten Commandments. And I wrote that in the book. And his first one is you will not sleep over with any other child. And um, I didn't I did in the fourth grade. I got away with it. My mother covered for me. But after that, I got in trouble and I never went to a spend the night party 
until I was at the academy and spent the night with my new roommates. So did he ever explain why that he did that? Oh, nothing good from comes from a kid staying up all night at a house, uh, running around eating sugar and being hyper. So um, they're not ready to do their chores the next day. So uh, he found no good reason that we should go do that. Well, he had no fun at all. No, no. And he's a workaholic. Uh, and he doesn't, you know, that was the deal with my accident is I actually went and thought I was having fun and I got bam slapped for having fun. So let me take you back there and say, I knew my soul was in the wrong place. The first day I got to boot camp and they told me to basically shut up. And the only words I could say were, yes, sir, no, sir, no, no excuse, sir. And so I was three weeks into basic and we got a phone call home and I called and my mother answered. And Kevin, I started hyperventilating and crying on the phone. I did not say one word the entire three minutes. We got three minutes to talk to him. So at the end of the conversation, uh, my commander told me to sit over there and get myself together. Great way to treat a panic attack, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> I didn't even know that's what it was. Um, and my mom later told me, she looked at my father and said, what have we done to her? And he's like, oh, she'll be fine. Well, the truth was I wasn't fine. And from there, I had to go to our flight, which R in this case stands for remedial training, where you work one-on-one -on -one with an upperclassman. So it just, I got through it. I don't know how every morning I woke up in fear that I would fail a run. My squadron would be so mad at me for holding them back. I mean, I just, I was like Private Benjamin. I mean, I scored a zero on the... Um, the gun thing. We had to fire an M16 and a 45, and I blew the post off the cement that the, the um, target's in. You know, I just, I, you know, I just, there's no part of my body that was a warrior or a fighter or a killer in that respect. And I understand that, you know, we need a military and the purpose of it is to protect and defend. But I was doing it for the wrong reasons. I was there because I was trying to get my dad's approval and please him. And I was killing myself in the process because I was being physically abused. I was being mentally abused, emotionally abused and sexually abused. And I just shut my mouth and put up with it until my sophomore year when uh, the beginning of the sophomore year, we had a uh, beginning of the like school year party and a squadron mm -hmm. party and there was alcohol there. And needless to say, um, I got a ride home with the last guy. He was a senior and we never made it back. And it was, uh, I did not know him. He was, he was in my squadron, but I didn't know him because he was two years above me, but he wanted to go drinking some more at another bar. And then he wanted to go watch the sunset and, doofus me. Um, I never been on a date. And here I am at a school with 4,000 guys and maybe 300 women. And it's like, uh, Nicole, what do you think's going on here? You think he had an agenda? And it's like, yeah, because he wanted to start making out. And I just got real scared. And I'm like, we got to get back to the academy. You know, we have to be in there by 735 or we get demerits. 
And he's like, ah, don't worry about it. I'm like, I am because I had Damaris last year and all that. And I'm not starting out the year that way this year. And so I told him to get back on the road. And the next thing I remember was waking up in the ICU in Penrose Community Hospital. Now I'm going to show you, for those of you who are looking, if you can see that, that was a 1965 Corvette convertible. Holy mackerel. It's amazing you survived. Yeah. And it is the passenger side. And, you know, we always want to make the front page of the paper, right? But I never. <laughs> Not that way you don't. <laughs> I know. I didn't want to make it this way. And, uh, you know, you start uh, thinking about those things your mother said, like, uh, did you have clean underwear on? But, uh, yeah. Uh, let's see if I can get down here. Can you see that? Uh, yes. Is the, that's, that's at the accident scene. Yes. That's the paramedics. That's uh three different fire units uh, responding. And that is the car that flipped over. So we were both thrown out of it. I was pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, and the other, the driver was uh, drunk and conscious and had some injuries on his back. So they took him to a different hospital. What had happened was some bystanders from nearby, because this was outside of the Academy gate in Colorado Springs, had heard the crash. They came out, they saw me and they saw the other guy and they tried to get a, a, any kind of vitals on me and couldn't. So they went in and got a blanket and covered me up. It took the first volunteer responders between 10 and 13 minutes to get to me. So I was clinically dead for about 10, 10, to, 10 to 12, 10 to 13 minutes. And wow. when he took the blanket off of me, his name's Jim, Jim Hartling. And uh, when he took it off of me, he said he got no vitals on me at all. And so the only thing he knew to do was a sternal knuckle press, which if you've had that done, it's designed to elicit pain in the body and boy, does it. So the only sign of life that he got was my right eye flinched and the pupil dilated. That was it. Now, Kevin, what do we say about the soul and our eyes? Do you know what that saying is? The eyes the eyes are the 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 eyes are the the um um the gateway to the soul. The eyes are the window to the soul. Yeah, and the gateway. Yeah. So what happened at that moment when he did that was my soul, which had flown out earlier. Okay, it came back in through my eye at that moment, and he was able to get a blood pressure on me of sixty over zero. They put these mass pants on me that they had never even used to try to force all the blood up to my organs, got me in the, the bus, the ambulance, and got me to the closest hospital, which was a community hospital, not equipped to handle trauma. Um, and then there, they, they were doing CPR the whole way. And I got there and it happened to be one of the best surgeons on call in Colorado that night. And it was the first woman surgeon in Colorado. Um, Dr. Amy Lou uh, Rothhammer, and she was my surgeon throughout the whole four months. And she's a maverick in and of herself. She was the first woman to go to medical school um, at Jefferson College in Philadelphia. I mean, she's, she's just incredible, her life. And so um, she is a thoracic specialist and um, she 
basically she had no idea who I was and she got a team together and they didn't know if I was going to make it that night. They were just trying to stabilize me and I stabilized somewhere early in the, the next morning. And uh, then I woke up about 12 hours later. And the first thing that I said was, oh my God, don't tell my dad, he'll kill me. That's how much fear I had of my dad, you know, because I broke his rules, Kevin. He had three rules, the, the Ten Commandment rules, but this is no drinking, no cigarette smoking, and no dating upperclassmen. Boy, he didn't want to have any fun at all. Yeah, no, no, he's not about fun at all. It is work. And, um, and so here was the first time, you know, that I had done this. Well, to fill in later, this past May, in the epilogue of my book, my roommate, there was four of us that went in in the squadron um, together, uh, uh, freshman girls. I not talked to her in 38 years. Okay. She quit the academy uh, that Christmas of my accident. She went home for Christmas vacation and she never came back and no one ever knew why. Well, I finally found her on Facebook. We Zoomed with the other two. And the first thing she said was, Nicole, I'm so sorry. I said, why are you sorry? She said, I'm the one that caused your car crash. I said, no, oh the guy was drunk. He did it. And he was making a sexual pass at me. And I said, no. And he got angry at me and he turned the wheel and we crashed into a boulder. And uh, she said, you had asked me prior for a ride back to the academy. And I told you, yes, you can have a ride back with me. Then when that time came, there was another senior who was drunk and I liked him and I wanted to be with him, but I wanted to be with him alone. So I was going to drive him back. And there was one guy left and I, and she said, I told you to go over and get a ride back with him. And I said, but he's been drinking. And she goes, they all have. And she said, you know, basically go have some fun and I'll see you back at the Academy. And I was like, Okay, you know, so I went over to this guy and said, Hey, can I get a ride back? Now, it was cool that it was a Corvette convertible, and you know, but I didn't, I didn't realize his agenda. And when the accident happened, we were still pretty far from the academy. It happened at 725. We would have never made it back by 735, and he knew that. And so um it was my roommate quit because she felt so guilty. She never told anybody until that night in uh, last May. And I said, why didn't you ever tell me before? And she said, because I thought you knew and you were angry at me. I said, no, I have no memory of that. But my parents blamed me because I broke dad's rules. And in my family, dad was God. You just superimposed, which is what happens a lot. You know, you impose your father onto the image of God and uh, he becomes that. So I disappointed my father and mother and God and I disobeyed. And so I deserved it. And uh, that was the part that I have struggled with my entire life. So when she said that, I finally was like, even after all the therapy I've been through, my parents have never apologized for that. And I, I said to my parents, guess what? I talked to, to Margaret and she 
was the one. I did have a plan to go back with her. I did ask. I did know he was drinking. And I, I knew all these things because I thought, how could I be so stupid? How could I not know he was drunk? Or how could I not know this, that, or the other? But the truth was, I'd never been on a date. I wasn't around alcohol or alcoholics. And he was an alcoholic. And I didn't know it. And unfortunately, any other cadet would have been kicked out that his dad held uh, three stars on his shoulder and rank has its privilege. And he was able to get the superintendent of the academy to waive um, his um, leaving the academy under various conditions. And he was able to graduate. But the state of Colorado did charge him with vehicular assault and DUI. And he pleaded guilty and was able to graduate. And, you know, it's just unbelievable to me how that conversation came 38 years later well you know it gives you some a little bit of closure which, yeah. is, which is really cool but and, and here's here's a point i would like to make before we continue the story and that is this that and i know this was a while ago and and parental um behavior has changed a little bit but it is a crime if you let a female child get to the age of 19 and not be aware of all the things that can be negative that can be out there, including the behavior of a 19-year-old male, um, if, if you don't give them those tools, then you're setting them up for bad things to happen. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. And so don't do that to your female child. Give them the knowledge that they need to be able to defend themselves and to understand how an, I was a 19-year-old man. And I know how <laughs> they think at that age. And they, you know who Robin Williams, well, of course, you know who Robin Williams was. Yes, yes of course. He had, he had a saying that I just love, which was, God gave man two heads, but only enough blood to one to run one at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so true. So true. So here's the other big piece of this. My memory didn't come back for 19 years. That's so, astounding to me. How did that happen? Well, of course, the trauma that you were in it would, would, and you, and the family situation that you in when everything was your fault and you were a sinner and that, and that, and that, I can understand you shutting it down. Yeah. So that was the only thing I remembered was bright white lights. And I, years later, asked my surgeon, could have that been the uh, overhead operating lights that I was seeing? And she said, absolutely not. You were totally unconscious, Nicole. Um, and she said, you know, it was something greater than uh, us. And she said, I think it's a spiritual thing, but I can't tell you any more other than it wasn't you seeing the operating room lights. I think you're onto something with this bright white light and an NDE. But I never had any memory of anything else until 19 years later when I was working at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I was on my way to work like I do every day, stopped at Starbucks, got my coffee, sat in my car, and boom, I could clearly see how I was sitting in the car. I just so clearly, I had one leg up on the dashboard and the other one um, crossed over, which by the way, please do not sit like that. Please do not hang your feet out the window and your legs up on the dashboard. That is the most injurious way to get, uh, 
injured in a car crash. You're uh, not prepared for it. If a car crashes, crash is a violent thing. And if your body isn't uh, correctly uh, um, secured in the vehicle, then all kinds of bad. That's how you got thrown out of the car. Yes. It didn't have seatbelts either. That was 1965, which helped because it flipped over. And as you could see, it was still on its top. So I had multiple injuries uh, that were, it just kept me on this roller coaster of life and death every single day. My left foot was amputated. So they grafted it back. My right wrist was severed. My pelvis was fractured on both sides. Nasty road burn from sliding on the pavement. Um, and six major surgeries in two of those, I, I code, it's a code blue where my heart and my, I, I just stopped and, and they, you know, and one of them, they declared me dead. They called a time on it and went and told my parents. And then two minutes later, the surgical nurse comes in the chapel to tell my parents they got to go and she's going again. So, um, you know, you I didn't, didn't, didn't want to come back, I think is what I'm trying to tell you. And when I, I pieced all this together. It's taken me a long time, but I've done it through medical records. I've done it through the district attorney's reports. I've done it through my memory. I've done it through uh, um, just a lot of different pieces that came together. But when I had that memory come back with how I was sitting in the car, I didn't go to work. I went to my chiropractor who is a body healer and there he helped me. They're called repressed memories. And they get stuck in you when you have trauma. And so I remembered exactly how I was sitting and how I flew out um, and I was going butt up through the windshield. That's how I cut up the insides of my legs, uh, a fourth degree laceration right at my vagina. So, I mean, it was bad and bleeding from the bone. I was in such shock. And so what happened was um, I got the memory to where I was up in the air and I could look down and I could see that I was going to die as soon as I hit the ground. And then he told me to go home, go to sleep, and the rest of the memory will come back. And it did. And so what happened was I was lifted up and I called it in the book. It was like Casper the ghost. I knew it was male. I've known certain characteristics that I talk about, but then in August, my grandfather on my father's side came to me and told me it was him that that came and saved me uh, in an angelic form. And he died at age 58 from a massive heart attack. And I was 58. And so he had died in August and he came he came to me and told me that's what happened. And so he said, we're going up to another. It's not a place. Heaven in a place. It's just a state that you go to, uh, you know, a state of beingness. And what I remember was there were other beings, um, light beings, spirits, uh, angels, just lots of, uh, lots of light and these angelic beings. Let me ask you a question real quick, because <clears throat> I've heard, I've heard that first of all, when you're there, you're an energetic being, you have no body. No, I did not. My body was down in, on the ground. I could see it. It was in a ditch and it was not moving. Did you feel, though, even though you didn't have a body, do you, did you feel like you had hands and you had feet and, and stuff? Or did you feel like you were just floating? I felt like I was floating like an astronaut in outer space. 
Wow. That, that must have been unique. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was enveloped in this white light, which is not, it was clear. So you, it wasn't blinding like some white light can be, or like a, you know, like a camera and you just get blinded by it. No, this was clear. And it was just so soothing and brilliant and beautiful and loving kindness and no negativity, no judgment, no nothing, you know, and I just, oh, I felt like I was just cocooned in it. And it was just, it was just the ultimate experience. And I heard these two angels talking next to me and it wasn't English. So I don't know how I understood it, but I did. It's telepathy or something. And they were saying that we here on earth, us humans need to ask them for help. So that's the first lesson is to ask your spiritual guides, your angels for help. And they're not going to intervene unless they are asked. And the reason they don't intervene unless they're asked is because we have free will. We've been given free will in this world and we have a choice. So I would like to tell people, please start a conversation with the angels. We all have at least one guardian angel, every single one of us. Now, I don't want to make make this clear because um, there are some folks, some religious things that are out there that would tell you, oh, yes, you have free will. But if you make the wrong choice, then you're going to hell. That's not how it works. No. You have ultimate free will to decide anything that you want to do. Correct? That's correct. Because we come here to learn lessons. It's pre-programmed why we're coming here. We're coming in with lessons that we need for our soul to evolve. And that's part of the lesson. I couldn't quit the academy. I was so scared and fearful of failure that I lived in a state of terror and fear every single day. And I knew I needed to, but I couldn't do it. I just couldn't, couldn't get myself to do it. And so my soul knew that and the accident fix that. I, I became a disabled veteran, you know, and it's just, it, you know, when you really know you need to do something and you're not able to do it, something, your intention, your manifesting is going to happen. Something's going to happen to cause you not to be in the situation that you're in. Does that make I, sense? Oh, but it's happened to me. <laughs> So, so I'm up there, you know, in this ooh, feeling, you know, no pain, no suffering. And uh, I'm hearing this conversation of ask the angels for help. And people laugh, you know, when I say, oh, you can ask for a parking space. It can be as tiny as that. It doesn't have to be a big thing. And it Happens doesn't need to be when you're in a crisis or some people get, you know, a health scare and all of a sudden they're praying and talking to God and Jesus and whoever else. Oh, I've never done this before, but I'm going to do this now. That's why it's important to develop a relationship with the spiritual side now to start start accessing this this um, part of you. You're you're spiritual and you're human and you're more spiritual than you are human because you're going to leave the body here on earth and it's going to decompose and your spirit is going to fly out of you and continue. Your soul is going to continue to live. That breath is what is the light and the love and the energy that continues to live. So when you were in that place, you still felt like you were you. 
Yes, yes. I was I was I was Nicole, but I I wasn't um, because I didn't have uh, any negative or it's like the stories of bad things happening don't exist. Ah. Okay, so I was told that I was going to go back and I was like, no, (laughs) I let's get this straight. I do not want to get back in that body because I could see that body was pretty mangled. And I knew that that was going to put me back into an infantile state. And my mother was going to have to take care of me. So I was going right back into the system that I wanted so desperately out of. And I, and that's what happened. And he, he told me that my mission was to tell people not to be afraid of death. And I'm like, uh, that's kind of a big mission. Uh, any scope, any scope to this, you know, and there was nothing. And the next thing I know, you know, I wake up in, um, the ICU and I don't have one memory of that whole experience. It all comes back 19 years later, because if I had to deal with that and everything else that I was dealing with, then I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made it. I couldn't deal with, I was on so many drugs just trying to handle the physical pain and get myself stabilized that to deal with emotions or to deal with spirituality, you know, the pastor came, mom picked the pastor, three of them came, she picked one, but that was her person to go to. I didn't want him. I didn't need him. I didn't believe in God anymore that I I had started not to at the beginning of the Air Force Academy. And then when I prayed for stuff and it didn't happen or for certain things to, to happen and they didn't, that's when I started giving up on God. I just went to church to get away from people yelling at me on Sundays for an hour. I was just sitting there just, you know, just so nobody could touch me. That was the only place on the campus where they couldn't. So that was a like big assignment. So I've known that that has been my mission and it's taken me another 20 years to actually align so that I'd be able to write my book called You Are Deathless. You know, a near death experience taught me how to fully live and not fear death and to get the messages out in a way that people can relate to them. And so I have spent 13 years writing this book and it has helped heal me in so many ways. But it was hard because um, it doesn't show my family in the best light. It doesn't show the image that they wanted, our parents wanted, of the Kerr family being this, you know, great family. Nothing's wrong with us. We don't get depressed. You know, the, the doctor did tell my parents, Nicole needs mental health. She's been through a huge trauma. And they said, God and Jesus are our psychologists. She'll be just fine. And of course, I was not fine because Jesus and God did not come down and sit in a a, on a sofa and have dialogue with me or do ENT or, you know, tapping or anything to, to get me to try to remember or to deal with the pain. So I your body will figure out a way to deal with it. And mine was an eating disorder. So I became back then in the 80s, it was compulsive overeating. And I just my body was mangled from all the scarring. Uh, I had to be cut from here to here in an emergency surgery. Um, And, you know, I just hated myself. I really did. And then I'm going to a college, Southern Methodist, where the 
focus in Dallas is on how how beautiful you are, how you oh, know no. your sorority or your fraternity and dating and all of that. And I just felt my self-esteem tanked so fast. I just felt like nobody would want me. What guy would want me? I had a colostomy. How in the world do you, you know, I, I can't stand it. How is a guy going to understand this? And I never had sex before. So, you know, it was, it was a lot, um, a pain that I pushed down with the food. And I did that for almost 20 years until I got married. So I, I, you know, I, I did go to Overeaters Anonymous and, you know, food is the one addiction that it's really hard because you have still have to eat to live, you know, with the rest of them, even sex, you don't have to do it, but it really helped me. The, the journey is what we're all on. We're all on this healing journey and it's not, linear. You know, I always thought if I did A plus B equals C and I started finding out that isn't true either, you know? So it, it, it was, it was a lot for me to have to work my way through. And at, at, I think about 19 years, you know, I'd finally gotten to a place in my body where it felt safe enough for those repressed memories to come up. And there is a book called um, Your Body Keeps the Score about trauma. And trauma is a huge topic right now in our society because we've just gone through COVID. Uh, there is tremendous amount of fear with all these mass shootings going on and just the uncertainty in life. We've got a lot of anxiety, depression, um, dysregulated nervous systems and PTSD and trauma going on in our country. And the thing is, is if your parents have not healed their trauma wounds, they cannot help you because they do not have the compassion, the empathy or the sympathy to help you. So their trauma wounds that they just bulldoze through in life, they're putting that same attitude onto you. Just get over it. And that's what I got told. You're alive. You're walking. You're back. You don't look bad. You know, um, just get on with life and just stuff the emotional part and stuff the spiritual part. And I can't say enough about emotional healing either. You know, we are a very illiterate country when it comes to emotions and the military causes you to become black and white with them. They don't want you thinking anything. You're supposed to just react yes or no. So that is why, in my opinion, so many people in the military have dysfunctional relationships is because they have been drilled out of their own emotions. And we all, every single one of us has emotions that we have either pushed or stuffed down during our lives. And when we feel, we heal. And I know that is kind of cliche, but it's so great when you can understand a trigger and where it comes from and feel the emotion and embody it instead of intellectually thinking I should be mad at this driver and going, yeah, I'm mad at him, but get it through my body. And that's where I had a real problem. I was in my head a lot instead of letting the emotions, you know, come through and embody them. But the word heal, it's interesting. It has a common origin with the word whole and holy, pointing to the relationship between body and spirit. 
And it was interesting because I want to just read a brief little snippet here about healing. Um, I say, perhaps you already know a biblical accounts when Jesus healed people more than once. He said, your faith has made you well. Now that I understand more about healing, I especially appreciate the King James version of one of these encounters. He said to a woman, thy faith has made you whole. And yes, whole. Wholeness rings true. Healing comes when I remember who I truly am as source. But it doesn't stop there. It also arises from accepting who I am all of me, my messy mistakes, my missteps, and even the misfortunes I create. Healing comes through that kind of embrace. So it really is a difference between well and whole. I agree with that. I agree with that. Now, would you say looking back on it, because you know you get the now the uh, the value of hindsight of all the experiences that you went through, do you think that they were kind of necessary to get you to where you are today and writing the book and to really put something out there. And that's part of the journey that you had planned for yourself before you even got here. I had to rewrite my contract when I came back. And um, I think when I say that, I mean, we all come in with a contract to evolve our soul's evolution and so what are we here to learn? And this can be something that you carried on gener gener generationally, you yeah. know, and this is something that can come from an ancestral pattern that, that you have inherited. That's not you. And it's time for you to now stop it. But if you're caught up in a family system where everyone has to toe the line with the same mantra, then you're never going to break away and become the being that you were born to be. And what I know now is had that accident not happened, I would not have had an idea of what God is. And now I can truly say that the, the lessons from these near-death experiences that I've had and hundreds of thousands of other people are true. You know, the first one is we don't die. So our soul lives on, not in this form, but that beautiful soul that we are all born with. That is what lives on. And that's what we weren't taught to have a relationship with when I grew up or even now. I mean, all I knew was soul food, soul music, and your soul will go to hell. And I was like, what is the soul, you know? Um, so, you know, and, and love, you know, this is, I want people to start thinking of love, not only as an emotion, but an energy, because Kevin, we're all energy. You think about that, that breath, your last breath. If you've ever gone to a funeral and you've seen the corpse laid out, that body does not look like the person nope. that you knew. Nope. I mean, I was just recently at my aunt's. And she's a beautiful woman, but they could not make her look like she looked. And it was just really like, that's not really her because her life force, her energy had been taken out of her. And it was just truly a corpse. 
And you know, when I was a kid, my, when my, we went to look at my grandfather who was laid out and at the funeral home and, and he was, you know, there for several days so that people can come by whenever they wanted to and, and give their respects and stuff. And I, I was 12, I was 12 or 13 at the time. And they said, he's not here. And my mom said, well, what do you mean? And I said, he's not here. That's not him. That's it. That's it. That is the shell of the of the man that he was. The essence of the man no longer is here. He's somewhere else. Oh, now, Kevin, you can't do that. All that stuff. But it's true. And and you you saw that as well. Absolutely. I saw my own shell. And, uh, you know, and it was just like, oh, now I've had a taste of this. I don't want to stay back in that. I don't want to get back in it because I knew there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering. And that has been most of my life, my adult life. I didn't get married till I was 40 um, because my memory didn't come back until my mid thirties. And so I was always afraid to get men angry. So I was people pleaser. I'm a recovering people pleaser, but that is an identity that a lot of us take on. And let me tell you, it will kill you if you don't stop it because you don't get anything out of it in the end of that journey. I'm convinced that the arrangement that you made before you got here included who were going to be your parents mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. your parents became your parents. And when via the contract that you guys did, they said, we're going to be really hard on you because we are going to make it difficult for you to achieve what you want to in life, because that is part of the experience that you go through to get that done. And, uh, and and what you did is through the accident and through growing up, you were able to evolve past that, to understand that, and then to become the person that the shining star of a person that you are today. Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah, and it, it's been a journey, and healing is a journey, and we never are going to be perfect. We didn't come down here to become perfect. We came here to learn lessons. And, you know, the second I want to talk about the, the, the positive lessons, love is all that matters and the source of all that exists. Okay. God is love. There you go. The source of all that exists. There is. Now, I want to, no- I want to make, I want to make this clear for folks. And so what this is, is a, and hold on, I'm going to do something for our audience uh, so that they can, they can look at this. Uh, I think we can do this. Is that right? No, that's your, that's your website. Hold on. I'm going to stop sharing that. I'm, I'm going to do this doggone it because <laughs> it is, it is important um, of that people can see this as well. Yeah. So I'm going to do this again and then I'm going to go and I'm going to share a screen and um you are let's see didn't it, um that's no well, that's, as you're yeah, doing that there it is. now that's there that's it on, you got that's it on the screen so that everybody can and the, these are 10 common lessons from DEs or NDEs and so we, now they can see them so we can go through them yeah that's great um your technology skills are amazing well, they're getting better. 
If I were really good, I would have done it the first time, but that's it. It's all right. We're getting there. Well, I appreciate that. See, we're not perfect. Um, love is all that matters and is the source of all that exists. And what I really know today is each and every one of us have to de develop our own relationship and concept of God. And I love in uh, my book where I talk about a little six-year-old that I had as a client and she was, she was very scared because she was uh, in a fundamentalist church and she was adopted and she thought she was going to go to hell because she did something bad. And I said to her, well, tell me how you think of God. And she eagerly told me God is a blue spirit with colors and balloons and all different colors, no head and can talk. So clearly this little girl is having is still having a direct experience with God and no filters from other people. That is the closest that I think I have heard anybody describe God because there's nowhere God is not. God is everywhere. Yes. And so if he's everywhere, then he's in you. He's in me. We are eternal sparks of God. There's no external God or somebody you have to go through to get to God. That is not true. And Jesus is a wonderful a way shower. I wish we could all emulate Jesus. And it really uh, pisses me off when people start quoting Jesus. And then I will say, well, Jesus also said, you know, not to be judgmental. And here you are judgmental against, you know, LBGQs, uh, you know, all of these different things that you're judging here and you're hypocritical about it. I said, that's not what, who Jesus was. And, and so, you know, I don't want to get into arguments with people, but it's just like, you know, don't just take the pieces that suit you. You have to look at the whole uh, picture and context of, of what his message was and what he was trying to say. And it's certainly not go to war and kill people uh, or any of those type of messages. It's all about love and healing. Um, so that is the source of all that exists is God is love and God is energy. So let me, let me uh, amplify that real quick. And that is that if God is love and God is energy and God is everywhere, then God is in us. And we are a part of God. Like you said, we are a spark of God. But that means that we are also, all of us together in the, we're part of the same family. So we are quite literally all one. Oh, you just did number three for me. Yeah, Every, perfect. <laughs> everything and everyone is connected. Yes. You know, if and you, I, I really, I mean, people come on, it, it, we really are, you know, um, when I was in the military, the saying was, we all bleed red, you know, when I was, when I was on death's door, you know, I didn't care about the religion or politics of the paramedic that was trying to save my life. He was just doing his job. You know, it, it doesn't matter. And our breath is all the same color, Right. And if we were to recognize that as humanity, it would change everything. Oh, instantly. And that is the mission that I'm on. I know it's a mission that you're on, is to get people to understand that it doesn't matter if you're black or you're white or you're Asian or you're, you, it doesn't matter who you love or it, it, it matters the content of your heart and that we are all one. We are all together. Yes. Um, and so we can help each other. 
And if we did that, poverty would go away. The things that we do to each other would stop. Yes. And we would start treating each other with the respect that each other, that God wants us or the universe or spirit, whatever you label it, what, that's what they want us to do is, is to take care of each other. And not only us, but the earth, the planet, taking yep. care of her, Mother Earth, and all sentient beings, all, all the animals, you know. And um, the fourth one, I'm going to move on because I know we need to get through these. Uh, loving ourselves and others is the most important thing we can do. You can't truly love someone else if you don't love yourself. And it's not getting manicures and pedicures and all that, being kind to yourself. It's truly loving yourself, all the messy parts, the, you know, the pooch, pooching stomach or whatever it is, but to truly love all of you as you are right now. And that takes practice because we are in a society that is very physically oriented in terms of looks. And you need to look a certain way in order to be noticed or to be uh, whatever it is. And um, that is that is a journey to love yourself and to come to understand that uh five we are more than our physical body and brain like i said that got left down there in the ditch so uh you know how much effort do you put into your physical body probably we spend 80 percent on our body and 20 percent on mental and spiritual and i think that needs to be reversed i think you know, we need to spend much more time on the spiritual parts of our lives and the mental well-being, emotional well-being, and of course, keep up with the physical. But that becomes the dominant one that we stay, you know, eat your fruits and vegetables. I'm a dietitian by training. I want you to know I've been one for 30 years and the number of servings of vegetables and fruit has stayed the same the entire time. And it's French fries, tomato sauce. <laughs> and iceberg lettuce that are the top three vegetables. So, um, you know, needless to say that message, you know, I can, I can keep singing it till the cows come home. And during the pandemic, it was eat the rainbow was Skittles and Fruit Loops and anything but fruit. So that can be a whole different show, but we're more than our physical body and brain for sure. Well, we let, never- me, let, me, let me highlight this for you because you were a dietitian for 30 years. Still am, but I don't. I, but I don't practice uh, privately anymore. And you, so you know, and this has been my experience: is that you know they have got these uh, stomach, these gastric bypass bypass surgeries. Yeah, where they take the your stomach and shrink it down to like the size of a walnut or something, and you can can't eat anything, and so you lose a ton of weight. Yes, I have seen people do this surgery. And then lose a hundred pounds or 120 pounds, and then gain it all back. Yeah. It, it is remarkable because it's a meant because you're right, we do not take care of our mental, spiritual aspects enough to overcome what we do to our bodies. I it seems to me, yeah. And you know, that's another part of us that if you've had trauma in your life, and most of us have, then parts of your soul probably have fragmented. They just go away and they do that in order to self-protect. And that can be a whole different show show as well as on your soul. And that that is a piece of healing. I went and saw a shaman 
and I had a 30% crack. When you die, your energy body cracks all the way up and your soul flies out. Okay. And so mine came back in, but left a 30% crack. So I had been walking around this earth with every time that I got triggered with my amygdala and that overrides your rational part of your brain, your neocortex. I would just, my anxiety would go up. I wouldn't know how to handle a situation. Um, you know, I just stayed in a heightened state of fear. And so that was in 2019. I talk about it in the book. A real revelation for me is that part of your body. If you've had a lot of trauma and you're stuck to start looking at soul loss is what it's called. And it can develop into a lot of addictive behaviors as well that manifest into addictive behaviors. And for me, that was true with the eating disorder. Um, and so, you know, I think um, I didn't want to be here. That's the number one criteria. Um, a low level, consistent feeling that something is missing. So you have this like low grade depression all the time. And the third criteria is you, uh, you can't get over it. You know, it's like you can't get over, like I couldn't get over the eating disorder for 20 years. It took me that long to, to truly get over it. And um, I wish I had known earlier um, that about soul loss and about fragmentation and about that part of healing because it would have helped me um, much sooner come to the realization about my soul and how to have a relationship with my soul. And it needed to be whole again in order to do that. So anyway, that's a whole different sidearm, but it's important. It really is important. We are never alone. Now the pandemic has brought this up big time because a lot of people were not able to see their loved ones pass. They physically could not get there. They watched them through windows or on zoom screens and it was really, really difficult. And I understand that. I really do understand that because we're human. And when someone dies, of course, you're going to be in grief and you're going to have pain and um, loss and suffering. And, and I want to hold that um, and also realize that you're spiritual as well. So there's a greater context and benevolence that's going on here as well. But when you die or start passing, you have your spirit guides, you have angels, you have deceased loved ones, deceased pets, they're all starting to come in. So from a spiritual perspective, a, you're never alone because you've always got your guardian angel and you, uh, you have a spirit guide as well. So you just can't see them, but they're there. And that is why, in my opinion, it is so important to start having a relationship with an with your angels or with the spiritual dimension, the spiritual realm, I would say. Um, and, and you can start anywhere. You can just say at night before you go to sleep, you know, angel, please show me a sign that you're, um, you're around or, uh, what your name is, or show me a heart tomorrow that would be unmistakably, uh, that I would know it came from you, you know, some kind of evidence and, you know, ask for that and see what happens. You absolutely have nothing to lose, but they are there for us always, always. And so we are never alone from that vantage point. And they are excited about working with you, but they won't 
unless you ask them to. That's right. That's exactly right. We don't want people telling us what to do. We like to be asked, right? Uh, of course, yeah. Yep. And they, they're not going to impress their will upon us, but they will go to the ends of the earth if you ask them diligently and honestly for a direction. What am I going to do with my life? What do you, then? And ask them to help. They will... <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. That's you might true. Care. I was just going to say transformation is not for the faint at heart. I mean, it's going to test you in some areas because what it's going to do is expose belief systems that you thought were true that now you realize were false. They were wrong. You were lied to, whatever you want to say. But it's, it is now the truth coming out. It's an awakening. You are starting to awaken your consciousness. And when you become awake, you can't unawake yourself. You have to choose, do I do something about this or do I not? And this is a direction to go or this direction, but it's clear cut. Uh, we are not judged. Oh my goodness. That one to me is probably one of the most beautiful because I felt like in our society, we are judged on looks. We are judged on grades. We are judged on, we are judged on everything. So you're not judged there. And I want to just read something real quick. Um, none of this fit what I experienced. On the other side of death, God was all around me. God was in me. God was me. And I was God. God was presence and fullness and oneness. But most of all, God was love, pure non-judgmental love. And in that state, it was not that I suddenly had been forgiven from for my mistakes. It's that they no longer existed. Nothing I had done on earth was being weighed or measured. It was simply the way my story had played out in one realm. Well said, well said. That's, that's very true. I, and from my perspective, um, our existence here on earth and our life here on earth is a learning experience. We're here to experience life in its entirety as much as we can. But at the end of it, it doesn't matter. We go on to much, much bigger things than this particular life in this particular place. This is nothing more than a footnote in history of, of our, of our soul's existence. That's so true. So you don't have to worry about being judged or being, you know, checked off of the list or whatever. That's not going to happen. Um, number eight, our true selves are perfect and we are loved more than we can fathom. That fathom, fathom. Um, in our soul state, in our soul state and our spirit is perfect. Every single one of us. It's what happens to us as we start getting filters put on to us by adults, authority figures, all these people throughout our life that changes the behavior to choose options that are evil or bad or whatever. But our pure state of being is perfect. And the other side, and you just said it, loves us more than we can even imagine because they don't know what they love is not conditional. It's totally unconditional, you know, and I think the best representation of that is for most of us are animals, your doggy or your cat or whatever. Um, nine, we will see loved ones and others when we return home. Yes, I saw my grandfather. It took me a while to figure that one out. But yes, he was there and he was in his 30s. He wasn't 58. He was at a much younger 
age that I could pick, you know, see him at. Um, so we have that to look forward to and nobody is going to hell. Uh, and then number 10, during a life review, we learned how everything that we said, did, and thought during our physical life impacted ourselves, others, and the world. So this is about being connected again. It's, you know, your, your need to consume so much and produce so much trash has an effect on Mother Earth. So start being mindful of that consumption. You know, start being mindful and aware of what your behavior is causing others. If you constantly are negative or judgmental or critical or shooting everybody or people are shooting you because if someone says, you, Kevin, you should do this, you should lose weight or whatever it is, that is shaming the person. That is low vibration. And we are not going there. We're going up, 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 high vibration. So quit the shooting on people and yourself, most of all yourself. Quit commenting and judging uh, your thoughts, your emotions, your comments. If you could just not judge yourself, that would help so much. You know, one of the things that happens, I have been told by other folks doing during their NDEs and and other folks is that is that part of the life review is you get to see what kind of an impact you had on somebody else from their perspective. So if you were a bully to somebody, they get to bully you in the life review so that you can learn why that behavior is not appropriate uh, and stuff. And, and that I, do you think that happens? Yeah, I think that's also karma. I think you come back as the opposite of what you played to balance it out. It's like a teeter-tot. So if you were a bully your whole life, you come back in the next incarnation of your soul and you will be the victim and you will understand what it is like to be bullied so that you have uh, uh, that revelation. So I think that kind of all dovetails together. I think I think you're right. I think you're right. So if uh, we would like to get a hold of you to learn more about you and what you're doing, how do we do it? Well, you can come to Newburn uh, if you want, but um, I have a I have a website www.nicolecurr.com. Uh, my book, "You Are Deathless." Um, let me get that copy here. Now, when do when was it released? August, August twenty eighth, which was the thirty ninth anniversary of my car crash, and it has pictures in it. Some people want to know about pictures, but you know, there's me and my siblings, um, and. I talk about my angels calling all angels and it's there was the paramedic that saved me. I'm still in touch with him. Oh, very nice. He's 84 years old now. And um, he wrote me the most beautiful review on my website. Um, you can get the book on Amazon. You can get it on Bar Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's in paperback, hard, uh, hard copy, Kindle. And in spring, I just finished recording the Audible because I want that 30% of the market that doesn't um, read for whatever reason that they can listen to it. And I did it in my own voice, which was really um, to hear myself tell my own story out loud was pretty profound. I will have to say that I I had to go. I had to do a lot of retakes. <laughs> Hey, but I've, I've done voiceovers and it takes a long time. Yeah. It just does. 
Yeah. And it really does your vocal cords. I mean, if you're not trained for it, it really can just like, oh, my goodness, my throat is so sore all the time. But um, that will be coming out as well. And I am on Facebook as Nicole.a.cur. I am on Instagram, Nicole.angelique.cur. And I'm on LinkedIn as Nicole.a. Dot cur, you can find me there. Um, but those are the only three platforms I can keep up with. I'm a, um, you know, I self-published and I'm, I try to keep the pr- prices only $9.99 for the paperback. So I want to keep it reasonable for people. I'm not in this to make money. Um, most authors, at least uh, new authors and, you know, most authors are not in it for the money because it's no. just, you know, it's to just, help people. And actually the the three reasons really quickly why I did write the book was to help you with your own fears of death. And there is a checklist of fears in the book. There's also book club questions. And I would be delighted. Think about this book as a book club discussion and what you would learn from your fellow uh, mates that are in your your club um, going through a book like this and to be able to talk openly about death and your fears about it. And I will, if I can, zoom in on your book club discussion and be part of it. I would love to do that. So I offer that as well. And I wrote it to support you through the loss of a loved one. And I hope that my book may inspire you to live fully and freely with your heart and your hands wide open that's a beautiful sentiment we should probably maybe end the end the uh, podcast with that what do you think my doggy says yes <laughs> oh, your, your doggy wants to go outside now <laughs> yes um, say that one more time uh about my doggy or about the book about the book okay <laughs> may my book inspire you to live fully freely with your heart and your hands wide open. Nicole Kerr, it's been a great pleasure having you here today. You're going to have to come back and we're going to have to do more because there's this topic is so relevant. There's so much to talk about. And it really is an exciting um, adventure that we are all on. And and it's really great to know that the adventure doesn't has, has no end date. It's yeah. just going to continue. So I'm an eternality advocate eternality is people go is that even a word and it is it's a a state of being um uh, eternal we have no end it's you know ceaselessless everlasting you know and that's some then in the church i think at the end uh uh, what is it that they say everlasting uh ceaselessness do you remember that from the lutheran Um, church world, uh, world without end amen something like that it's like we're we're everlasting yeah, I know. I've forgotten it. So now I'm going to hell. <laughs> but anyway, we are. And that's what I want people to, to to understand so that they don't have fears living this life. Because this this world is so beautiful. And to focus on the positive in it and the positive in people. And, you know, we can all, we're all in this together. We all are in this together. Think of it like taking a trip to Disneyland. Nobody goes to Disneyland to have a shitty time. Everybody goes there to have fun and to enjoy themselves and to have experiences that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Treat the treat your life like a trip to Disneyland. Yeah. So 
Nicole, thank you so much. And it's a great pleasure to have you here. If you'll wait right there, I'll be right back. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember... 